Good evening. It's time for another bedtime story with Thompson, and we're starting our new book. We're breaking out from the east to explore the west. The Oregon Trail by Francis Parkman. Chapter 1. The Frontier. Francis Parkman, explained my friend and cousin Quincy Adams Shaw. If our classmates at Harvard and our parents back in Boston could see us now. Well, Quincy, I said, if we wish to study the savage Indians closely, the only sure way to do it well is to meet them face to face on their home ground. So we must travel as far west as the Rocky Mountains to do it. And we must be properly dressed and equipped for so difficult a journey. I looked at his outfit, then in mine, and added, And so we are. We wore red flannel shirts, belted around the waist, buckskin leggings, and moccasins. Heavy pistols hung in our holsters on plain black Spanish saddles. Quincy carried a double-barreled shotgun, while I had a 15-pound rifle. Beneath the protective white covering of our small cart lay our provisions, a tent, ammunition, blankets, food, and presents for the Indians. An outfit, I said, glancing from Quincy's clothing to horses to mules to cart, more suitable for hard use than for decoration. It was May of 1846. Quincy and I were in Westport on the Missouri River. Westport was considered the dividing line, or the jumping-off place from the United States' western frontier to the wilderness. Beyond that wilderness lay Oregon and California, each with about 4,000 American settlers. But in 1846, nearly 3,000 emigrants were making the dangerous journey west along the Oregon Trail. Just one month ago, in April, we had arrived in St. Louis. The city buzzed. Settlers from every part of the country were preparing for the journey to those distant western lands of promise. An unusual number of traders were making ready their wagons and outfits to head for Santa Fe, the capital of the Mexican province of New Mexico. The hotels in St. Louis were crowded, and gunsmiths and saddles were kept busy providing arms and equipment for the travelers. Steamboats were heading up the Missouri, crowded with passengers on their way to the frontier. On April 28, Quincy and I left St. Louis in one of these steamboats. It was so heavily loaded with trade goods, wagons, mules, horses, saddles, harnesses, camp equipment, and travelers to Santa Fe and Oregon that it sat low in the water. It sat so low that the river splashed easily onto the deck. For about a week, the vessel struggled upward against the rapid current, sometimes running aground on sandbars for several hours, sometimes grating on underwater tree branches. These branches were the limbs of trees that had grown along the shore before the wayward river had begun cutting into the bank, sending them crashing down into the muddy stream. Some then became lodged in the river bottom, ready to punch holes in any unhappy steamboat that should pass over them. As we traveled along the river, we began to see signs of the great western movement that was then taking place. Parties of settlers with their tents and wagons were camping on open spots near the river on their way to the common meeting place at Independence, Missouri. When the boat pulled into Independence Landing, I saw on shore broad-hatted Mexicans who worked for the Santa Fe traders, long-haired, buckskin-clad French hunters just returned from the mountains, and many tall, strong men with rifles, the latest of that fearless band of pioneers whose axes and rifles were opening a path from the Allegheny Mountains to the western prairies. Now they were probably bound for Oregon, which was more 
a more challenging and exciting territory for their restless spirits than any territory on this side of the Great Plains. The town was crowded. New parties of settlers were constantly passing through to join the thousand or more emigrants camped out on the prairie about eight miles away. The streets were thronged with men, horses, and mules. There was an unending hammering and banging from a dozen blacksmith shops where wagons were being repaired and horses and oxen shod. A train of emigrant wagons from Illinois had stopped in the main street. Healthy children's faces peeped out from under the wagon covers. Here and there, a plump maiden sat on horseback, holding a faded parasol over her sunburned face. The men, sober-looking farmers, stood about their oxen with whips in their hands. I looked at them all and thought, Why are they going west? Is it a mad hope for a better life? A desire to shake off the binding rules of law and society? Or mere restlessness? Will they be sorry that they made the journey? When we reached the Kansas Landing about 500 miles from the mouth of the Missouri, we left the boat and stored our equipment at a tavern while we sat out in a wagon for Westport. There, we hoped to buy horses and mules for our journey. Westport was full of Indians, sacks and foxes with shaved heads and painted faces, Shawnees and Delawares in calico frocks and turbans, Wyandots dressed like white men, and a few wretched Kansas Indians wrapped in old blankets. They strolled about the streets while their little shaggy ponies were tied by the dozens along fences and rails. As we stood at the door of a tavern, a familiar face appeared. I would have recognized that ruddy face and bristly red beard and mustache anywhere. It was Captain C. of the British Army, who, with his brother Jack and Mr. R., an English gentleman, were setting out on a hunting expedition across the continent. We had met them earlier in St. Louis, and here they were again. After the usual exchange of greetings, Captain C. got serious. Mr. Parkman, he said, our number's too small for a journey and alone into the mountains. It struck us that since you and Mr. Shaw here were bound that way too, as you told us in St. Louis, you might wish to join us. Reinforcements, as it were. Surely, Captain C., I replied, you must have thought of going with one of those emigrant parties. Very distastefully, he said. Oh, no, Mr. Parkman. Not with those Kentucky fellows. You and Mr. Shaw are gentlemen. Anyone can see that. Now, what do you say? Remember, if we travel together in union, there is strength. I turned to Quincy and asked, Well, what do you think? Sounds like a good arrangement to me, he said. Splendid, the captain almost shouted. Then it's settled. We agreed on the route we would take traveling west. Then, since we still had to complete our preparations, we promised to meet our new friends at the Kansas Crossing, where they would wait for us. We purchased horses and mules and hired a cheerful Canadian, Des Lauriers, to manage our animal team. The fourth human member of our own little group was a Frenchman we had hired in St. Louis to be our guide. This was Henry Chatelon, a six-foot-tall, powerful, yet graceful hunter who had spent half his thirty years in the mountains. It was said that he had killed more than one grizzly bear for every year of his age. I would later discover that nowhere in the city or in the wilderness would I ever meet a better or braver man than my true-hearted friend, Henry Chatelon. And that's the end of part one of chapter one, The Oregon Trail. We're all out of time, kids. Good night.